Welcome everyone to the CEO.Digital show. My name is Craig McCartney and I'll be your host that's going to guide you through an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-suite. You'll hear insights will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders. We'll be interviewing a range of C-suite executives, those that are creating technology to those that are implementing it to support their businesses. Find out more and stay up to date at ceo.digital. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the ceo.digital show. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our next guest to you. Our next guest hailing from the U.S. is David Beck who is the Chief Strategy and Corporate Development Officer at Brightcove. Brightcove are a leading streaming technology company, and within this, David leads the strategy, business development, and also the corporate development there. In previous lives, David has worked at organizations such as AMC Networks, Warner Media, who uh, went on to become HBO Max, David is also the co-founder of Brave Ventures, which was acquired by Turner. And outside of uh, all this wonderful experience, David is a big supporter of MIT's Entrepreneurship Center, having helped expand the Deltaverse Accelerator program from Cambridge to New York, and uh, serves as a mentor and advisor to multiple companies within that program. David, uh, it's a, re- a great CV. I could probably speak about your experience for ages, but... Let's dive into some of that now. But first, I want to officially welcome you to the CEO.Digital show. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So we always start in one particular place for these shows. We want to know our guests a little bit better. We want to know you and your personal journey and your story. So how has it come to be that you find yourself the Chief Strategy and Corporate Development Officer at Bright Cove? Can you tell us? you know, a few highlights, you know, in terms of your career trajectory. Sure, sure. I mean, if, if I had to look back on what was clearly not an A to B to C to D path, I would say I'd summarize the journey as one of get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I say that because throughout my career, I've been working in media and technology and in sectors and in times that I think have gone through sort of the perfect storm of transformation and change, right? There's so much change happening in the media ecosystem today, and it's it started many years ago. And as part of that, my jobs primarily have been around transformation and growth acceleration. And those have been kind of the two areas where you better be comfortable with change. <laughs> That's the definition of what you're going to do. Great. Sort of any notable stories from some of the careers and jobs that you were you were at before you joined Brightcove? I'm happy to give you a little more of the sense of kind of the journey itself. You know, I started my career in media while I was in business school, actually. I wound up working at MTV in a strategy and business development group. This was the summer that Hulu was being created, actually. Viacom was involved for the beginning of that period, and then we're not. It was a period in which, you know, you had a tremendous amount of, you know, sort of, sort of the move to dot-com, and you had the legacy issues of big media companies wondering, you know, why they were putting content in these places. You know, this even predates, you know, sort of the early days of social media. But with that, the chaos that had ensued there, I had an opportunity to go to Bain & Company, which is one of the big global strategy consulting firms. And I chose to go there during that period 
in part because as I looked at the next couple of years of my career, it was about where uh, is a company going to invest in you? And this was the, one of the few times I realized that the, the company's primary goal was to develop you as an asset, right? Is develop you and do the training that was going to help you be successful for them and their clients. And they were dealing with, and, and what I wound up working on were primarily uh, a couple of big media companies that were looking for growth strategies, both organic or inorganic. We worked with NBCU at the time. I'm sorry, Comcast at the time that had been, was looking at whether they could actually scale the existing media business they had or, or whether they were going to have to do a major acquisition. And that obviously was NBCU. We were working with companies that were creating analytics around media businesses. You know, think of the Nielsen's and the Arbitrons on the radio side that were going through tremendous upheaval. And then we were working with private equity firms that were actually out there figuring out where they wanted to play in the space, traditionally been maybe focused a bit more on the tech, actually now wanted to own content. So it was a really interesting period. And what happened was I found myself with an opportunity to go to Univision, which was owned by multiple private equity firms, a billionaire, and in need of a pretty significant transformation from sort of the traditional legacy media business into digital and ultimately into social. Let me just pause there because I could keep going, but it was a very interesting period where you had a company that knew that they had a population that was over-indexing in mobile, over-indexing in social, but still making a ton of their money out of the, the traditional radio and television business, but wanted to rapidly accelerate in the areas of digital and social. Yeah, it's great. And it's always just good to get a flavor of your background. This is not a job interview, of course. I don't want it to feel like that, but it's just, you know, um, everyone's career takes different uh, turns and yeah, it's just, it's great to, to see and hear that sort of path, you know, and where it brought you. So let's talk about Bright Cove. What are you doing at Bright Cove? What's your day to day? And can you tell us a little about the company itself? Sure. So, you know, just to kind of build on the kind of transition from where I'd been and after Univision, I went on to work, uh, found my own firm that was around digital transformation. We were ultimately acquired by Turner, which is part of Warner Media that would become part of AT&T. So again, this theme of working with uh, helping businesses accelerate sort of the transformation from traditional to new or said otherwise swap out the engine while flying the airplane. And what happened ultimately is, you know, you saw tremendous upheaval in the AT&T and Warner Media acquisition deal that's been unraveled with Discovery now coming in. And then I went to go work for AMC Networks as well, helping to kind of build that transition from traditional to launching AMC Plus as well as a number of their um, AVOD or fast channels as part of that transition. And so when I took a pause after, you know, about 10 plus years of the tumultuous nature or Game of Thrones meets succession of media land, what I wanted to think about next was where is technology going to support, you know, and help drive much of the change going forward? And Bright Cove has been in the business video since sort of the beginning, one of the early pioneers of video on the internet. And what Bright Cove does today is work with a set of media clients as well as non-media clients, although that's a, a bit of a misnomer, and I'll explain why, powering their ability to attract audiences, retain those audiences, and ultimately monetize those audiences. So whether it's AMC in the US or BBC in the UK or others in, in Asia and throughout the globe, we help those media companies deliver the streaming services and experiences for consumers. And whether it's a one-time event or an always-on service, Bright Cove is the underlying video technology platform that supports that. 
for non-media companies, so brands, let's take a, a Home Depot in the US, you know, where there are thousands and thousands of videos on their website being used to both educate consumers on the options, literally teach them how to use the products and provide additional content that would be relevant to them and a path to purchase. You know, we're helping empower brands to educate their consumers, train them, you know, and ultimately find an expedited path to purchase. Okay, great. And in terms of the role chief strategy and corporate development officer, it's like, it's quite a new one. I've never come across the sort of the, the joint sort of um, responsibilities there. Can you tell us, you know, how does that fit in with Bright Cove? And do you know anything else that, that you think would be relevant around that? Sure. I mean, like all titles, uh, <laughs> there's always debate on what they mean. If you go on LinkedIn and you start searching them, you'll get a variety of answers to what they look like. But ultimately, the CEO, Mark Debois, brought me on and, and the leadership and, and board ultimately brought me on to help accelerate growth of the business. And that's going to come from kind of two main areas. One is the sort of organic internal innovation and set of growth initiatives that will help drive. And then the second is inorganic, and that speaks to more of the M&A and, and large-scale corporate partnerships that we might be striking. So the strategy side is, is sort of where do we fit in the marketplace and how do we organize ourselves and the resources of the company and the talent to be able to execute on growth, whether it's innovation or kind of core growth. And then the other piece is what are the deals that we can do to accelerate that and what are the large-scale partnerships that we can bring to bear to accelerate it as well? I ask, I guess, as a layman, sometimes I'm mainly educating myself because I have this great opportunity to speak to people like you and then learn about all the intricacies of the different you know, lines of business. So apologies um, if it was a bit of a simple question. <laughs> It's a fair one. Often the chief strategy officer, people kind of harken back to thinking about, you know, a four box slide where people tell you to be, you, you know, you want to be in the top right corner of that slide. That's the quadrant you want to be in. And there are some roles that are like that. That's not my life, my career progression. I'm, I'm both an architect and an operator. And so it's often, you know, getting to understand where you should be is one thing. It's the path to getting there and really being able as someone who is, is a strategist and an operator to work with operating teams as well as partners to figure out how you get there and how you do so successfully. And I mean, it sounds like it's quite a busy job. I'm not going to lie. It sounds like it definitely keeps you on your toes. How do you fit all that in with, you know, all the other stuff that you do? I mean, you're just looking at your resume, your advisor to quite a few different organizations, all, you know, some of them are quite different. Do you have 24 hours in your day or is it slightly more? Than that. <laughs> I, I wish I had more, although I do subscribe to, you know, what seems to be the growing trend of people raising their hand that are saying that sleep is actually important, <laughs> you know, that, that sleeping actually helps you perform better. So putting that aside, it is busy, but the reality is that, you know, I'm very much focused on this role and this opportunity. If I pull back and that's a very accurate read on, on sort of LinkedIn throughout my career, I've had a base business, right, as an operator in a business or an entrepreneur having launched a business. But as part of that, I've always been an investor and an advisor in startups. It's what has kept me fresh about what's interesting and what's happening. When I worked at big media companies, 
you know, hundreds, if not thousands of companies came in to pitch why they could do something better than us or bringing them in-house could help us improve an experience. And whether that was on analytics or, or sort of the optimization or whether that was uh, consumer facing experiences of engagement, particularly around social engagement. So it's always been something that was a requirement of my job. And then as an entrepreneur, we also had a sort of seed stage business where we invested in companies and, and incubated companies. And so coming to Bright Cove, interestingly, you know, a company with this incredible bed of technology, longstanding history as being an innovator in the space, one of the key priorities I have is to continue to work with the ecosystem of companies that are out there, some startups that are bootstrapped, those that are worth billions of dollars. But that has always been a passion. And so, yes, you'll see a number of, of companies over the years that I've been an advisor, you know, uh, on for a variety of things. It's usually around, you know, kind of the high level strategy. It's around M&A or large partnerships. And also, how do you interact as a startup with big organizations, which which sometimes can be a challenge in and of itself? I know you mentioned M&A a few times. Is that going to be quite an important play for Bright Cove over the, the coming years? Sure. Well, you know, I'm four months. Literally, I think today is probably my four-month <laughs> anniversary. On one hand, it feels like four years because of how much has happened. But on the other hand, it's gone by in what feels like four weeks. What I would say is that, you know, we are in this process and, and Mark, our CEO, laid out you know, publicly what, what our kind of top line strategy is around accelerating growth for the business. And we are actively in the process of looking at what are the things that we want to build organically from a technology standpoint? What are the additional set of services and what are the real needs of our media clients as well as our non-media clients? And then what are the options to sort of accelerate that? Some of that you know, there is an option, you know, or there are options from an M&A standpoint, but like anything in M&A, timing is important. And we're obviously in a very interesting market at the moment. Interesting is probably a gracious way to say what's really happening, but we are very active. There are many companies that are, are come knocking, we're interested in either M&A or more strategic partnerships. So I would say that's one of the reasons I was brought in here. Timing is interesting today, but it will be a focus going forward and, and welcome any and all opportunities related to that. You mentioned technology a few times there in, in some of your answers, and obviously that is sort of driving us all forward and what clearly you're passionate about. Can you just talk a little bit about how technology has played, you know, the role it's played in your development and success and is there anything on in the pipeline which you're excited about and then obviously bringing in Bright Cove into the, the conversation? Sure. At the highest level, I would say, and not by design, <laughs> in many of the positions that I've been in, I go back to Univision when I was made the head of social media, having not actually been on Facebook at the time, <laughs> uh, to fast forward to many of the conversations you know, that I've had even recently with our product and engineering teams. Often there will be far smarter people in the room, you know, related to technology. And what I've learned over that period of time is your ability to sort of synthesize and explain what the impact or relevance of that technology is, particularly to the C-suite. So early on in my career, imagine trying to explain why we needed hashtags on television or why we needed to do a hashtag vote for the best dressed on a red carpet, seemingly trivial at the time was actually, you know, an important discussion around audience engagement and sort of the basis for how we would start to monetize that business. So a lot of it comes down to, I've learned that you've got to be able to explain technology in a way that's relevant to the audience, but, you know, within an organization to how 
it makes money, right? Or how that technology supports the key initiatives for the company. As it relates to Brightcove, again, one of the things that attracted me to Brightcove and Mark, our CEO, talked quite a bit about it is that we've had some of the best technology for many years, and that provides this foundation to build on, right? And there will always be interesting upstarts or areas in which companies are going to go super deep. And we want to be that trusted platform that's able to, to plug them in, you know, whether through an actual technology integration, which we've set up through our partner marketplace, or ultimately through something that we might want to bring in-house through an acquisition. You know, as we think about technology, it, the pace of change is accelerating beyond, I think, what most executives are prepared for over the next couple of years. So a lot of it is really being able to distill what's going to be meaningful to my business and what's going to be meaningful to the end user. And in that case, it's someone sitting on the other side of a, an iPad or a screen, you know, watching a, their favorite show or somebody who just bought a ping pong table and is trying to figure out how to put it together. And they're using video as the way to, to help them get there before their kids kill them for spending six hours doing so. Yeah. I know it was spoken about in the pre-interview and we spoke about what are you most excited about for the future and you just mentioned things like audience engagement and user content. And I guess what I'm trying to work out is how are media and non-media companies adapting to different differences in user behavior and user experiences? Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I think it's a great question, a very poignant one. And if you just look at the number of headlines that in the media space right now that include the words fast, you know, and you think about SVOD uh, and AVOD and fast, you know, that's a great example of where over the past few years, obviously, uh, with the rise of Netflix and, and Amazon and whatnot, every major media company jumped into the SVOD world very, very quickly and with billions and billions of dollars supporting that. And as you've also heard recently, subscriber growth, you know, has slowed in, in many cases. I think there's also a bit of people understanding that it's relatively easy for them to switch out, uh, switch out a service for a couple of months and come back to it. But the other main, you know, I, I would say trend is that the willingness of people to consume ads, right? And do that through an AVOD tier or fast channels, the willingness to want to lean back. There's a fatigue around searching for content. We've all had that, you know, experience of getting onto whatever service and trying to find something you watch and realizing it's nine minutes later and you're wondering, why am I still searching, right? And so companies have had to adapt to provide this sort of lean back experience, this lean back linear experience that's much like traditional television. But to your point of what excites me is I do think that is one of the issues that media companies in particular and a lot of the technologies that are supporting it are going to have to deal with, which is how do we improve the quality versus quantity? The amount of dollars that are going into content continue to accelerate. There will be more content available, premium long-form content available than in any period in history. And how do you reduce that, the noise, right? And get to what you want to see. So I think there's still great strides that need to happen around search and discovery. And then likewise, and I'll pause, because we did want to talk a bit about this, is this idea of bundling, right? There's content and, you know, content and shopping, content and other things that you want to spend your time with. So I think what I'm excited about ultimately is the shift from quantity to quality, getting to the quality faster and reducing the friction to getting there. The bundling experiences, you know, that we may get to that sort of align, you know, your content interests with your off-screen interests. 
And that I think is going to be a major focus of, of the media companies as well as the technologies that support them. Yeah, I think you referred to it as the bundle wars when we, we spoke about it previously. Yeah, and the streaming wars I thought was going to end, you know, not that long ago, but the proliferation of streaming services has kind of kept it going. I think we are now really entering, you know, the era of the bundling wars, you know, which is what can I match with my streaming service? You know, you're seeing that play out. Well, first of all, everything that's old is new again. And this has actually been going on for quite a while. Amazon was sort of the pioneer, relatively speaking, by, you know, Amazon Prime as being the sort of the core and all of the services, including video that were part of that. Fast forward to today, you know, you see almost every telco partnering to give you X number of months free as part of signing up for a new cell phone service and also getting that content with it. You know, you've got Walmart and Paramount coming together. And those are, I would say, are sort of the sort of the large scale volume plays for bundling. What I expect that we'll start to see are more bespoke bundling opportunities, lifestyle opportunities. So people that are are watching, you know, a certain type of content, let's say it's sports related, the offers around athletics or companies like ClassPass or Peloton or others in which, you know, the behaviors that you're watching from an entertainment standpoint also are, well, where are you spending your money? I'm spending my money working out. I'm spending my money, you know, getting out, you know, into nature or do it yourself, right? If you're watching all the do it yourself shows, going to the Home Depot and going to others in that space and being able to bundle offers that are relevant. And I think that you're going to see a lot more of. Interesting. I haven't seen Netflix doing anything like that. They're sticking content. That's the, what's driving them forward or, yeah, I think their primary focus, right, is is providing that AVOD, recognizing that people are churning, recognizing that people are interested in, you know, a lower priced option and, and they're going to attack that. But that's a great example of, you know, a very large company that's been very much focused for a long time, recognizing the changes in, in end consumers' behaviors and adapting to them. And, you know, if you were speaking to other business leaders who are looking to sort of bundle content with other services, what would you say to them right now um, to sort of give them a leg up and, and to help them you know, get out on top of the bundle wars? I think that comes down to an understanding. First of all, do you understand your audience, right? Do you really understand the audience that you have and what their interests are and what is your ability to understand it better, right? How can you enrich your understanding of the audience that would then lend itself to say, great, now let's find the relevant bundling offers. Again, large scale offers, you know, like access, you know, to the Paramount and Walmart as an example, that's one thing. But if you want to get down to the level of, you know, particular sporting activities or subscription services, you know, that's going to require a bit more granularity. And I think that also suggests what are you going to offer the audiences in return for that information, right? Audiences in general are, are more protective of their data and their identity, but they're willing you know, to sort of trade that if there's a relevant offer. So I think companies that think about what they can learn from their audiences today, what offers they might be able to grant them that would give them more insight and better tailor the options that they have. I think those are going to have the best, I would say, fact base, right, to make a strategic decision to reach out and understand what partnerships going to make sense. Okay. And thank you for that. I think that is um, solid advice and hopefully not giving away too many trade secrets, of course. What do you think is not getting enough attention from this sort of technology viewpoint? Is anything that you think you know, we should be aware of right now? 
Yeah, I think it's actually a great segue, which is data and identity privacy, right? So that which what I've suggested is important is actually one of the biggest issues. And I am by far not an expert in this space, but you know, data doesn't go by on my LinkedIn feed where I don't see another article related to data and identity privacy laws or regulations that are taking place, whether it's you know domestic in the US or international. I think this is going to catch a lot of companies by surprise. I mean, I mean, obviously, the legal groups and data privacy groups within many of these large organizations are thinking about it. But the point at which consumers start to say, you know, my data is worth something, what are you offering me, right, I think is coming. And I think the brands that are ahead of that, that proactively say, listen, we know the following about you. Here's how we'd like to use it. If you would allow us to we'll provide you with something above and beyond what we have before. And we want you to be able to say yes to that. And we want you to be able to say no to that easily, right? We all have the experience of the websites that we continue to go to and there's blockers and questionnaires and some are more consumer friendly. Others, you know, almost kind of trick you into hitting a button. And I think this is an area that is going to kind of explode in terms of the complexity of rules and regulations. And I think it really behoove brand leaders, you know, not just the privacy and policy teams, but brand leaders to think about what's the value that we can provide consumers that would incent them to provide us a little more information, you know, improve that consumer data value exchange. A lot of my thinking here, you know, and a lot of this is coming from exposure. One of my former business partners, uh, Jesse Redness, you know, started a company uh, along with the chief data officer out of Turner, Stefano Kim, a, a company called Consent. And that's where I've gotten educated a bunch on this. But it is one that a lot of people are thinking about. I just don't know whether enough brand marketers and technologists are thinking about it. And what is Consent then? Is it something that where you say where you as the user can sell your data? Yeah, it's a play on consent, you know, the actual word consent. But how do you create a market or a vehicle where brands and publishers can offer consumers something? Imagine, a, you know, if a consumer had a consent wallet, you know, a wallet in which, you know, they're able to actually say, here are the brands that have my data. Here's the offers they're giving me with a flip of a swipe on the phone, decide what you would like to accept or not. That's an oversimplification, you know, and, and I would certainly point you to them yeah, to tell you about their company. But what I would say is, you know, my exposure to that has really opened up my eyes. When I think about it from our clients, both media and non-media businesses, there are so many ways in which the data can enrich those experiences for them, right? Going back to better recommendations, you know, better ways to engage in, I would say, live commerce opportunities or interactive opportunities. But there will be a point where, you know, consumers will want to say yes or no to the data being collected around that. And I think, you know, that's something we think about as simply and our clients think about. But in, in aggregate, there's definitely not a lot enough people paying attention to that space. I'm going to throw a curveball here just because I do wonder if you have an opinion or any thoughts on it. But, you know, the metaverse is being spoken about a lot do you think the metaverse is going to have a play in these streaming and bundle wars? Is that something that you, you think about or can speak about? Yeah, that is a great question. And, and while the metaverse is a, an enormous topic, I'd say the piece of it that's probably most important and relevant to what I'm, I'm about to give you a point of view on is IP ownership, right? The metaverse is a huge opportunity for people to own their IP control it, monetize it, and just and own their digital future. 
one of the key tenets of what you know we are trying to do at Brightco, right, is empower companies to leverage their IP, to own their IP. And many of the, obviously, at the big media company level, they do that. But there's what we call, you know, the producer economy. You know, these are, are individuals or groups that, you know, are creating television movies that might have a significant volume of that and the ability to directly monetize that or have an option to directly monetize that. It's sort of the one level up from the creator economy, which is, you know, a, a much wider, broader set of participants, but even at the highest end of the creators, right? They are building businesses around their brand, primarily on channels like YouTube, you know, and others where they're giving up a tremendous amount of their IP and their dollars. Now, that's also an incredible audience funnel and and will always be, and social networks will change over time and they'll always be critical for bringing in audiences. But we at Brightcove, with the technology that we have, have the ability for any creator, right, or producer or media company to be able to organize their video and audio, right, and create experiences that they can go direct to consumer with. In addition to, right, we're not trying to supplant their existing, but we want to be an and to what they like to do. And so if the metaverse, you know, Web3 is all about kind of taking back control and ownership of your IP, we are a trusted technology platform at global scale that can handle that. And so that is an area that we don't talk a lot about publicly, but is one that is, you know, when you talk about the strategy and what box and quadrant you want to be in, you know, we feel very confident about our ability to support in the Web3 environment. Oh, interesting. And how far away do you think the metaverse is from making proper waves as opposed to just being a, a nice buzzword? I know there are metaverse experiences and, you know, it is here now, but when do you have a prediction of when it could properly come to life? The only prediction I would make there, and I'll go back to my early days in, in social media and, and sort of social TV 1.0, which is where there was an explosion of social integration on television. You know, as I said, sort of whether it was hashtags on screen to, to sort of live voting to second screen experiences you saw a company, you saw it coming, there were tons of naysayers, and then all of a sudden, you know, the flood came, right? And so my only prediction is that I don't know when, but there will be a point where there'll be this sort of critical mass, and it's hard to define what that is, but when it happens, it's going to be all around people and surrounding them, right? And so again, those companies, they're at least beginning to think about where they would play. And I'm not talking about just kind of standing up a quick Web3 campaign or creating an NFT on the fly, but thinking about ultimately where they fit in the value chain or the new value chain that Web3 is going to be are the ones that are going to be prepared for the flood, you know, when it happens. That's great. Sorry, I went a little bit off piece there, but it's come up with... That's very relevant. You know, it is the future. It is absolutely one of the things that from a technology standpoint, I didn't say it before because it is a little further out, but the idea of helping people leverage and monetize their IP and create direct experiences with fans is without a doubt one of the more exciting pieces over the next you know few years. Wow. Look, David... We've spoken a little bit about your experience, technology, now the metaverse, of course. But let's get to know you a little bit more. Um, so we have a fun round towards the end of the podcast where I ask you, you know, a couple of simple, silly and standard questions, I guess, that perhaps you would ask your friends. The first one is, is one of my favorites, but do you have a, a guilty technology pleasure? Very good timing, which I've realized 
now that I'm missing it, I realize how much of a guilty pleasure, but I do Instagram scroll quite a bit. And I just changed my phones, my carriers over the weekend, had a problem logging in, got myself locked out of it. So I've been without Instagram for about two days now while I wait for them to reply to me. Would have been better for this to have happened when I was running social media in a media org. I probably could have picked up the phone. But yeah, I find myself scrolling on Instagram probably an, an unhealthy amount at this point. Yeah, fair enough. Do you use other social networks? You mentioned LinkedIn, you mentioned Instagram. Are there any others that you are you partake in? I mean, again, my job often I'm on platforms to see what's happening. But, you know, as you said, with only 24 hours in the day, the ones that I default to are the ones like LinkedIn for business purposes. And when I want to break from all things businesses, that's typically when I'm going to Instagram. I've got young kids, or I'd say younger than I'd like to have them on social media, and they are. So I am starting to monitor them everything from Be Real to obviously TikTok and watching them consistently dance at all times, you know, <laughs> like, like, like it's a TikTok. So. It's strange. I'd stay off them for fear that they will find, my kids will find me on them and then, yeah. Uh, we spoke about streaming. I mean, are you? do you have anything that you're watching at the moment that you could recommend to us? Yeah, well, I mean, I've finished them, but I think one of the series that caught me by surprise was a, a series called Foundation, which I kind of likened to Star Wars meets Game of Thrones meets uh, Interstellar. It is a bit of sci-fi, but, you know, brings in sort of modern day politics, you know, and uh, the role of religion and technology. So really interesting story. Tehran, I thought was great. A really, really interesting look at, at some experiences there. And, and then right now I'm watching um, uh, House of Dragons, uh, finally catching up. <laughs> What's your preference there? Do you like watching multiple episodes or... Do you like what, like, you know, the House of Dragon are doing now where they just released one episode, like old school television? It feels like quite old school, but it builds up the suspense. Which one, what's your preference? First, it depends on whether my wife and I are watching at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) If that's the case, then I would say sort of the weekly drip. I actually like it becomes something to kind of look forward to. And and I think that's nice, right? You know, a Sunday night or Thursday night, there's something nice about that. And while we continue to kind of come out of COVID and back to the real world, I still like having that appointment viewing, which is nice. But if it's uh, Peaky Blinders, which is another one of my favorite series, you know, the second that comes out, I'm watching every single episode and then getting mad that the next season isn't available, or in that case, the movie that I've now got to wait for, for the finale. Oh, cool. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And then in terms of your friends and your family, how would they describe what you do? (laughs) that's a good one I'm laughing because when I think of what they describe what I do now I I do remember when I worked at AMC networks and oversaw BBC America as well and at the time there was a new you know version of you know sort of planet earth you know one of these big big epic shows and and I remember you know my kids sort of saying what do you do dad and you know I was head of programming strategy and you know a whole number of things and they brought some friends over one day and the show came on. They said, my dad makes planet Earth. You know, it was one of those, you know, where they're pointing to say, well, not exactly. I mean, I make it, you know, show up at this time or available on demand. But aside from that, that's not what I actually do. What they do know now is that I help, I, as I said, I said, with these videos that you're seeing, in almost all cases, if it's not on YouTube or one of your social platforms, in all likelihood, it's being powered by Brightcove. That includes, you know, uh, the retail sites that you're looking at dresses on, or it is uh, whatever streaming application that you're on right now. Yeah. And your friends, do they know much about your career and, and what you do? 
Yeah, I think most know me from the big media companies. Most of my friends that aren't in the industry say, well, what are you doing now? And I just say, well, you know, what do you use video for, right? And as they, if they begin to explain, well, actually, you're right. I just was trying to do, uh, you know, a renovation in my house and was looking at video here. Or I'm teaching my kids how to pitch and I was trying to figure out, you know, what's the best equipment for whatever that might be. It becomes pretty easy to explain what you do when you make it real for them. And video is just becoming ubiquitous in the ways that we engage with, you know, entertainment as well as commerce and in our everyday lives. It is definitely. Yeah, I mean, I do wonder, are you getting enough sleep nowadays? I know you mentioned at the start before we started recording how sleep is important and you're getting your six, seven, eight hours in. I am not getting enough sleep. But that's mainly because of uh, the school year starting and having to get up earlier than in the past. I do look forward to it and will never be one of those that touts having only four hours of sleep. That's not what's helping for me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I sleep fine. Everyone's like, what keeps you awake at night? I'm like, no, not, not much keeps me awake at night. <laughs> <laughs> not very much. <laughs> David, thank you so much. It's been great having you as a guest. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Me too. It was great. Happy to be back anytime. Definitely. And if you like that, uh, then please do like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to uh, see who is coming down the guest list next thank you